Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies. The podcast about research, trends, and critical issues in the fraternity and sorority industry. I'm your host, Gentry McCrary. Welcome to the 10th and final episode from Season 1 of the Dyad Podcast. What a crazy eight months it has been. I'd been toying with the idea of starting a podcast for a few years, but could never find the time to commit to learning the technology, editing, and everything that goes into producing a show of even rudimentary quality. Then COVID hit, my travel schedule came to a screeching halt, and all of a sudden I found myself with lots of free time to learn how to podcast. And learn I did. When I started the podcast, I wanted to make sure it was not about COVID or perceived as just a way for me to stay relevant in the fraternity and sorority industrial complex during COVID. I wanted it to be relevant, educational, provocative, and most importantly, I wanted it to be sustainable beyond the COVID pandemic. I wanted to create evergreen content that would maintain relevance over time and not just be a response to what was going on around me. So making the podcast about leading during COVID or how to Zoom and do other pandemic stuff good too just wasn't appealing to me. I entered into this process thinking that things would be back to normal sooner or later, and I wanted this podcast to still be relevant as a resource long after COVID was no longer a thing. For nine episodes, I have fastidiously avoided even mentioning the word COVID. So, it's somewhat ironic that the last episode of Season 1 is all about, you guessed it, COVID. Specifically, this episode is about some of the potential long-term impacts of COVID, based on the most recent batch of longitudinal data gathered by our research team here at Dyad Strategies. This episode is being jointly released as a companion piece to our 2021 white paper entitled The Impact of COVID-19 on the Fraternity Experience, Three Disturbing Trends. So, before listening any further, go and read the white paper if you haven't already. It will give you some valuable context about some of the research we talk about in this episode. You can find links to the white paper on our website, www.dyadstrategies.com, or on our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Okay, now that you've read the white paper, you're up to speed on the three trends we've seen in our data. For those of you too lazy to read, I'm going to briefly summarize those three trends here. Trend one, fraternity members are drinking more. After years of steady decline, binge drinking rates spiked for fraternity members during fall of 2020. Overall consumption of alcohol also increased. The majority of fraternity members now measure above the threshold of what public health experts would consider alcohol dependency. Trend 2. Fraternities now have a higher concentration of quote-unquote always joiners. Most of the folks in the fraternity and sorority industry are familiar with the concept of always, maybe, and never joiners. They are, respectively, the guys who knew they wanted to be in fraternities before they ever set foot on campus, the guys who were ambivalent about joining fraternities before they joined, and lastly, the guys who said, no way will I ever be in a fraternity. And our research has found that in fall of 2020, we ended up with a lot more always joiners and fewer maybe and never joiners. This is problematic because we know through our prior research that always joiners tend to be more socially motivated, they tend to drink more, 
And chapters with higher percentages of always joiners tend to have more risk-related incidents. And finally, trend three. Fraternity members saw a big spike in attitudes that are supportive of what we call social dominance hazing motivation. If you're unfamiliar with this concept, go back and listen to episode one of the podcast, my interview with Aldo Chimino, or better yet, look up our article in the Journal of Cognition and Culture about hazing motivation. Social dominance hazing motivation is generally a belief among fraternity members that it's important that new members earn their way into the group by doing a bunch of subservient things that reinforce the social hierarchy within the group. In other words, you're down there, I'm up here, and if you want to be up here with me, you're going to have to do some unpleasant things. So yeah, not good. So for this episode, I wanted to talk to someone who could help me connect all of these dots. And I couldn't think of anyone better to help me do that than Dr. Lori Hart. Everyone in the fraternity and sorority industry knows Lori, so she really needs no introduction here. But why have her on this episode? Lori is the ultimate boundary spanner. She's a prevention expert. She has worked on campus. She has worked for national groups. Now she works for Holmes Murphy, an insurance company who services fraternities and sororities at the national level. She has such a unique perspective given her years of experience and various roles in the profession, and so I'm thrilled to welcome her to this episode to help me process what we're learning about how COVID is impacting the fraternity experience. All right, Dr. Lori Hart, welcome to the Dyad Podcast. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited that you're here. We've, we've been doing this. You're the tenth episode, and this is going to be the last episode of season one. Um, and so what a, what a great guest for our, our last episode of our first season. Well, thank you. I mean, I think it happened because I was poking you about research, but I'll, <laughs> thank you. you. You are on my list, but it's like, you know, we've tried to make this about research. And so we've, we've been, we've been doing a lot of original research, but, but the research that you do is the, the synthesizing research, right? And there's so much going on right now in terms of different dots that are out there as we're seeing kind of post COVID trends start to emerge that, that the work that you do is incredibly important in someone who understands the context, but who also understands the research is able and is able to connect all those dots. And so that, that might even be the, that might even be the subtitle of this episode is connecting the dots with, with Lori Hart. Cause that's really, well, thank you. well, no. And I always say, I like to say it out loud, like, cause people go, you're an expert. I'm like, I'm not an expert, but I can intuitively channel all the experts and pull the stories together. That's what I, I think I've always done in my higher education world, which has allowed me not to do the research. So I appreciate that. Don't get me started on a tangent about how we perceive expertise in this field, because we can go on. I, that's not the point of this episode, but we could talk about it for a while. I think that's a big challenge. I think there's a lot of folks who we don't have experts outside of our field, right? Like I think that's one of the big challenges in the training sorority industry. If you look at all the quote unquote experts, they're all homegrown. Like we don't pull people from outside our little bubble. I brought Aldo Chimino to AFA a couple of years ago to present and he's by all accounts, the expert on hazing. The guy has done research that's just mind blowingly good and like the session was half full, like, cause he's not, oh because he's not famous, right? Like he's not calling people out on Twitter and he's not, 
doing crazy stuff and it's like he's he's just an expert but like people don't value that they value celebrity but not expertise it's fascinating to me it's true what i always say our best work is done outside of the field like if you are looking for someone inside of the field it's it's not i mean if you don't know who nora valco is you're like okay then you're not you're not looking at the right stuff i have always been a fan of if we are in this industry our job is to go outside and push it not push it out that's right and the true experts understand that. That's why you are an expert. Yeah. And we're well, happy to have you. you on the podcast. Thank you. So we're going to talk about post-COVID trends, right? So as, as you know, and you and I have discussed before, we're starting to see some data that looks at kind of what the experience has been over the last nine months, how it's changed over the last nine months, and how these various dots that are floating around out there can really inform what we need to expect moving forward as things hopefully start to get back to normal in in fall of 2021. So we've got some data that that we've seen now that that has emerged from our longitudinal clients. Uh, You've got a ton of data that you have access to through the work that you do for Holmes Murphy and and just other data that's out there. So I want to I want to spend today's episode connecting the dots that we have through our research at Dyad to the dots that you have through the work that you're doing at, at Holmes Murphy. So I'm just, I'm super geeked out. I'm excited that you're here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So let, let's talk about alcohol first. Um, <laughs> we have data, pretty clear trends, uh, and, and it's consistent with everything I've seen emerging from public health data that since the pandemic started, people are drinking more. And that's certainly true in the fraternity data that we have. So at this point, all of our sorority clients gather data in the spring, so we don't have longitudinal post-COVID data for them because our spring clients gather data February to early March, and so they had all gathered their data before the shutdowns happened. So we'll, we'll be getting a second batch of kind of post-COVID data here in a couple of months, but all the fraternities who gather data in the fall, we got our first big batch of, of kind of pre-post-COVID, and what we saw were pretty significant spikes in self-reported binge drinking, pretty significant spikes in overall consumption of alcohol vis-a-vis the the audit scale, the alcohol use disorders test, which is one of the measures that we use to measure self-reported alcohol use. So so students are drinking more. How does this connect with what you're seeing from uh, the, the claims perspective, the risk perspective, public health data related to alcohol, like how, how is this connected to some of the other data that, that you're seeing? So for me, when we talk, going back to the expert comment, um, I think jo- Dr. John Clapp is an alcohol expert in our field. And so in June, um, I went to his higher education center webinar and I thought, okay, well, here's the expert. It's June. Now we've been in COVID mode since March. What are we going to find out? And it's always disappointing when the expert says, we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> so in June, Dr. Clapp said, we don't know. And I think for me, who's been trying to watch and find this stuff, your research is the first research, research that I've seen pop up that's actually showing us. But in June, he said some interesting things that I think will connect the dots to your research. He talks about there's lots of predictions about alcohol use disorder. Uh, your prediction, Your research is saying it's going up. But he also talked about, and I think, you know, alcohol use is going up with fraternity members, but where are they doing it and how are they doing it? Because right now they're establishing the practice of how they might continue doing it. Um, one of the things he talked about was with COVID, alcohol sale restrictions have been eased. 
before COVID, I couldn't call Taqueria next, you know, Mexican Go get restaurant. you a pitcher of margaritas. Yeah, I, I would, I, you know, I couldn't like have it delivered. Like now we can have alcohol delivered to our house. So what a world. Yeah, a whole new world. So now how availability goes up, access goes up, drinking goes up. So I think as we, you know, your research is spot on, it's going up. But then the impact of this is they're not doing it in the way they did it before COVID. That's right. So every practice of, of maybe trying to follow the rules or understanding risk management policy is out the door because since March, they've been doing it totally different. And so what, what are you all seeing from a practical standpoint? So it's like, we know students are drinking, but they're not drinking at big parties. They're not drinking at packed bars. They're drinking in small groups. They're drinking alone. I don't know, but you all see this obviously from an insurance perspective show up in a different way in terms of incidents, in terms of claims. How are the alcohol related cases that you're seeing showing up differently from what we saw typically in the past? So in the world of Holmes Murphy, there's about 90 clients, 60 plus what would be our NIC or NIC-like groups, nine NPHC, multicultural groups, six MPC. Um, so it's a, a breadth wide group of people. Uh, it's a lot of people, 90, 90 clients is a lot. Um, in March, April, when the chaos started, you know, clients were saying to us like, we need a reduction. Like we want to- <laughs> Nothing's happening. <laughs> Yeah, like we need to like get this, you know, students are gone. And we like, but are they, are they gone? You know, because we didn't know if they were actually gone. We still had facilities to ensure. And even in the spring, we saw a lot of men remain in the facility. And as adults gawked at that, like, well, I can't believe they're still there. And I'm like, that's their lease. That's their home. Like, why, why can't they be there? They have to live somewhere. But there was a lot of... Um, pushback of student behavior, like we won't have claims because of COVID. We did not know. We had no idea. So at the, in December, I had Rob Moraz, our extraordinaire claims specialist guru, who is also the nicest human in the world. I had him crunch some numbers for me because as I like to say, how you tell the story, you have to look at it from every angle. Claims is a part of our story. Underwriters are a part of our story in fraternity and sorority. And people say like, well, how long will fraternities and sororities exist? The answer, and this is the truth, as long as underwriters give us insurance. That's it. Uh, and right now they're feisty because if, if there's claims, they're not making money. So I had Rob crunch the numbers and here's what we found. Between May 26th and November 30th, there were 83 claims. That is consistent as in the past. So maybe fraternity story looked different in the fall, the risk did not look different in the fall. 26 of those, and these are just claims that were reported. This doesn't mean the carriers, there's payouts, but there were 26 sexual assault claims. There were 16 assault and battery and there were eight hazing claims. And when people hear that or see that, they're like, oh, we don't have an alcohol problem. 90 to 95% of our claims involve alcohol. I right. don't care the organization. So when groups say, we don't have an alcohol problem, we have a hazing problem. Well, if 90% of your hazing problems involve alcohol, guess what? You got an alcohol problem. And that's an underlying current. 90 to 95% of our claims of sexual misconduct involve alcohol. Alcohol is the biggest predictor for sexual assault. We still have an alcohol problem. So sober people are out there fighting, right? Like the, the assault and battery claims involve alcohol. Involve alcohol, right. I mean, just it, it all involves alcohol. 
But culturally speaking, from our client's perspective, we do have some culturally based groups who, who have gone head to head with me on the fact that alcohol is not our problem. But if alcohol is involved in the claim, that's part of the story, we're not going to we're not going to fix hazing. We're not going to fix cocaine in the basements. We're not going to fix bows and toes if people have handles in their hand. Like, we're just not. Um, so the significant story of fall was, no, we were not less risky, and it looked the same. Um, the practice of our, practices of our students, how they gathered might have looked different, but what they were doing when they're gathered did not appear to look different. Fascinating. So... When you think about what the data actually say, when you dive into the numbers, I'm particularly fascinated by the, the, the audit data that we have, that alcohol use disorders test. So if you looked at fraternities across the board on that consumption subscale of the audit score, they average around a 6.5 uh, pre-COVID. And that is on an 18 point scale, and I'm not going to get into the metrics of the scale, but but just for our listeners, they need to know that Public health experts and the designers of that scale say that any score over six is indicative of alcohol dependency issues, right? And so our members were already showing very mild dependency issues pre-COVID. And then now that number has basically jumped up a point, right? It's gone from mid-six up to over seven, depending on the group between seven and seven and a half. So from mild dependency issues to definite dependency issues, right? And so as you think about it through that lens that we've now got this generation of members who because of the lockdown, because of everything that's going on in the last year have developed alcohol dependency issues. What happens when things get back to normal, right? Like what happens in the fall when they can have their big parties when they can go back and do some of the things that they're doing. To me, that's the concerning thing, right? Is, is the, the question around public health and, and Lori, where I'm interested in your insight is doing prevention work, which is something you've done for a long time. That totally changes, right? I mean, because now we're dealing not only with the risk associated with a big event, but we're worried about the risk associated with members who have alcohol dependency issues. And that's a, that's a totally different risk, isn't it? So connecting the dots to um, some research that came out with this, and then I'll give some thoughts. Uh, in August, the North American Interfraternity Conference released Dr. Gary Pike's research, and he replicated his 2003 research on the national survey on student engagement and came out with a lot of I mean, it was kind of, for me, the positive research that came out about the sorority fraternity experience in August. And it was um, legit. Like, this, this, wasn't, was this legit. wasn't Unaloa. This was legit research. Legit research. <laughs> um, and so all that information is on the NIC website. You can watch the webinar. If you're trying to recruit, looking for the positives, there it sits. But one of the things he said, and I'm just going to read it. He said, problems found throughout higher education, including alcohol use and abuse, hazing, sexual assault, and academic achievement remain in Greek letter organizations as well. Um, effectively addressing these issues will better allow fraternities and stories to contribute to the academic and social life. He, he, he found that we are, as we all know, a microcosm of the university community. We're not sitting out here in our silo causing all the problems, but you know, he said, we're a part of the problem. And so when he comes back to, we need to focus on alcohol use and abuse, hazing, sexual assault and academic achievement. Don't you think that's strange that his research correlates to, I don't know what's causing the claims. 
sexual assault, hazing, assault and battery, and alcohol, what we just said. So here is my plea to fraternity and sorority folks. Here is my plea to headquarters. All the work that we need to do around diversity and equity, inclusion, and social justice issues, it is relevant, it is real, it is needed. We cannot also take the eye off the ball of what is causing the problems, what is causing the claims, what is causing students to drop out of school. And oftentimes I see it just like, okay, well, we, we educated them on their policy three years ago. I can't believe they have a problem now. I think we do a terrible job in fraternity sorority of being consistent in our policies, reviewing those policies, updating those policies, consistently telling our students what these policies are, giving them resources to do these policies. And because it's not fun, it's not sexy. Like it's just not, this is, I find it fun and sexy. I have no idea why, but, <laughs> um, but this is not like why, I mean, this is not why people go into higher, like to be a fraternity story life advisor to do risk management work. But I think we're gonna have to do that work. I think headquarters are gonna have to do that work. And then I'm also gonna say, and you can take this or leave it, this is old age talking. I appreciate the $50,000 learning management systems. They're not working. Like LMSs, have you ever been on an online learning? And it was like life-changing. Like, I think we're gonna have to get back to, let's train the trainer. Let's get in front of the students. Let's get these students talking to each other. It's not about walking in and yelling at them about policies. It's about getting them to say, I don't think we should be doing drugs in the house. Like it's getting brother Bob to say that to brother Jim and then letting them have some discourse about it. Our students are going to need help talking to each other. So I think you're going to have to go back to the basics. I think you're going to have to go back to the evidence-based approaches of alcohol skills training program and do real training. Don't just read an article and think you're an ASTP tra trained facilitator. <laughs> Organizations need to put money into it um, and be consistent. And that's, you know, if, if y'all don't know my history, that was my work with Pi Kappa Phi years ago. We had these two deaths that were consistent and they were terrible and they were freshmen and they were 4.0 students and they were just left to die. And I was 31 years old and somebody looked at me, or not the somebody, I know who it was, the national president looked at me and said, fix it. And I'm like, I'm just 31 with a PhD. I don't even, I don't even know how to fix this. But what we found when we partnered with the Higher Education Center and we partnered with outside experts and we listened to people, what I could do was channel that down to students need consistent information. Just like if you have kids, kids need consistent information and boundaries. Like, it's not that hard. Now it is hard, I'm not gonna say, but in Pi Kappa Phi, what we found was when we did that work for a consistent five years, we saw our claims go down to zero. We saw our insurance rates go down. So this is also my, you can't go be on a campus for 12 months and go, I can't believe it hasn't changed. Like, and then quit your job. It's not gonna change until you stick with something, whatever that something is, put your head and heart into it. And I sat there for 15 years and put the head and heart into it. And, and it was great. I mean, we had the vol I mean, we had hundreds of volunteers doing this work. I don't think it's an either or, right? To choose between the types of programs that we need to do. And I think where our, our field needs to evolve, and I, a shameless plug for Dyad, but this is what we do. Not every chapter needs a diversity, equity, and inclusion workshop. Some chapters could be giving us workshops about diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? And, but we've got groups and we've got campuses 
that are still adopting a one size fits all approach, right? Everyone needs this workshop. Some chapters need that workshop. All of our chapters need ASTP. Maybe, maybe not, right? Like, so it, it, the, the idea being that if you don't have data to help inform the decisions that you're making, then you're going to be inefficient in the work that you do. You're going to be delivering programming to groups that don't need it. You're, not, you're going to be diverting resources where they're not needed. And, and, and in doing so, then you're going to not be putting resources where they are needed. And so I, I think your point is, is spot on in that there are a lot of things we need to be paying attention to. Right. The DEI space is incredibly important. The alcohol space is incredibly important. Sexual assault, like that's all we were talking about five years ago. And now sexual assault programming seems to have gone on the back burner. It's like we're just chasing around shiny objects and whatever the new big thing is, that's what we go after. So what's next? Right. Like we do DEI here for another year or two and then and then we move on to something else. So I I get frustrated watching us chase bright, shiny objects and not be more thoughtful and intentional and people throw the word intentional around it's a buzzword intentionality is using data to make decisions right understanding and knowing the unique needs of your group the unique needs of each chapter and having resources available to tailor your approach to each chapter to give them exactly what they need and we just don't have enough groups that are doing the work at that level yeah and if somebody's sitting here saying we don't have the money to do that well great then start with your conduct records right like <laughs> that would drive your work. Like people just guess what the problem is. And I'm like, well, what, let's go with this week. What has made your phone ring? You know, other than parents, like what, you know, like do something that's going to at least say, this is what we believe we should be doing and why not because somebody on the NASA list service doing it. Right. Like, just like, oh, well she did it and she sent me her script. So I did it. Like just what, what's driving your work and why. Um, and if your conduct I mean, cases are all alcohol related and you're doing nothing in alcohol. Like it just, it blows my mind. Absolutely. And you know, I, I guess the other thing I want to think is, as you think about this at the national level, the data are so overwhelming that alcohol-free housing works. And I'm not asking you to, I'm not asking you to weigh in on this because I know there are a lot of people who have a lot of strong feelings on this. I will share that when you look at the fraternities in our data set that are substance free and you compare them to the ones that are not, the differences could not be more stark. They drink less. And here's the best part. They're more satisfied. When you look at satisfaction net promoter scores, the fraternities that have the highest in our data set are the groups that have had substance free housing in place the longest with one of our clients, we dove into their satisfaction in detail and we asked them, what is the leading driver of your satisfaction, right? When you say I'm not satisfied or I'm very satisfied with my experience, in rank order, what are the things that are driving your level of satisfaction? And the top three or four are all belonging connection related stuff. The relationships I have, I feel valued, I feel connected to the people. And all the way down at the bottom of the list, I think the number is like 4% of people say that the biggest driver of their satisfaction is the fun, right? So getting alcohol out of the facility changes the nature of that facility to such that it's not the place where we go party and drink. It's the place where we go connect with one another. And the groups that have figured that out, their members are having 
by far and away the best experience. And these groups still have issues. They still have parties. They still have members who drink. But when the house is not seen as the place where you go party, it fundamentally alters the experience in a positive way. And in so doing, it makes it safer and it creates an environment where students drink less. And why every fraternity on the planet hasn't transitioned to substance-free housing blows my mind because the data are so overwhelmingly compelling. You don't even have to respond to that, but you can if you want to. Oh, I'm going to. <laughs> this was not on the little checklist. I don't think that we were going to talk about, you know, so this is dating myself, but I was in the midst of these first conversations in the nineties when alcohol free housing became. And again, I'm not a researcher, so you have numbers. So this is where it's going to get unfair because I'm going to give you my observations. So in the nineties, this was the discussion. I was involved in many discussions around this. And I was also doing a dissertation at that time. So working with Pi Kappa Phi as a volunteer during this period, you know, we were a person of changing behavior does not, changing location does not change behavior. But this was in year one, year two, right? So changing location necessarily is not gonna make you stop drinking. So that was the initial argument with Pi Kappa Phi. I mean, that's what we pushed forward. And we went head to head with Phi Delta Theta. That's not a secret. I also remember being in a Big Ten meeting and Deb Enzer sitting there, God rest her soul. I mean, we, we need about 20,000 more Deb's Enzers. She looks over at the executive director of Phi Delta Theta. She's like, oh, come on, Bob. Name one Phi Delta Theta house that's alcohol free. <laughs> it was like this, like, and we were like, oh, all the students, we were like, ah, adults coming at each other. I used to be in that camp too, because it's like, I, I worked at Alabama. There was a fight out house right by the football stadium. I walked by there every game day. That shit wasn't alcohol free, right? right. Like, so I think in the 90s, like the rel, like, can we really, can we really, I also don't think in the 90s when we were having this discussion that drugs weren't in the houses as much as they are today. This is my anecdotal thoughts. But what we found... And Phi Delta Theta, kudos to them, because I mean, they took the lead and Farmhouse has always been in that camp, but they took the lead, they researched it, they showed it. But what Pi Kappa Phi also showed at the same time, when we put effort and energy towards education, training, mature adult guidance, and we put money towards that, we saw the same reduction in claims. We saw the same reduction. So what that says to me is do something. Mm -hmm. I don't care. We, you can do it with alcohol in the facilities or you can do it without alcohol in facilities, but we have two and we never came head to head to show that together, which is probably what we should have done. But well, I, I have that data now. So if Fidel and PiCap allow me to release their data, I, I would be happy to, to show the side by side. Well, but, but this is like in the mid 2000s or sure. 2010, when we saw their claims go down, we saw our claims go down because that's yeah. what the research was that we were looking at. Sure. If we looked at 2020, you might be able to say to me, well, the belonging data looks different. Mm -hmm. Right. Be able to tell another piece of that story. Yeah. And it's not just the belonging data. Right. I mean, it's the satisfaction. It's, it's the alcohol use. It's everything. And, and, and the reason to me those data are so compelling, Lori, is because those alums, those volunteers, those board members who tend to be the ones who push back on alcohol free housing, their main argument tends to be, well, you're going to ruin the experience. Right. You, you know, it's going to be the fraternity jailhouse, it's not going to be fun. Who's going to want to be there? It's going to, it's going to ruin it. And then you look at those groups, 10, in, in the case of Fidel, 20 years later, their members are the most satisfied. They're having the best experience, right? So like 
it's not only that you didn't ruin it, <laughs> you made it considerably better by, and absolutely, are all of these houses 100% alcohol-free all the time? No, but when you know the expectation is that your house is alcohol-free, that creates a different environment, right? And, and so the data, are, the data are what they are. They're, they're, they're pretty compelling. But I think also from the claims perspective, what we tend to see in the campuses who are heavy, like we have event registration, you know, we have no alcohol in our house, like they have this. What we tend to see is the student behavior runs from, well, this is the official event or this is the official rule. This right. is the expectations is enforced. So then we're going to move over here to the unofficial gathering at Bob's house, to the unofficial event, to the unofficial pledge pledge party. And the problem is, where we have got to expand this is claims happen everywhere. Yep. I just did some work with farmhouse and that was like their big, the students were like, well, we don't drink in the house. Well, well if all y'all tiptoe over here and you have the event and it's unsafe, a claim still comes from that. Right. So the systems that we put in place to keep students safer can sometimes backfire because they think anything outside of that registered or official house, like, claim this doesn't matter. I, um, I worked with a farmhouse chapter. I won't mention the campus. I'll give them plausible deniability, but they had a vacant lot next to their house and that's where they did their drinking. I'm like, <laughs> that's it. Every farmhouse chapter needs just a vacant lot next door where they can just yeah. mosey across and hang out. So, yeah. No, and, you know, I'm a mother of a 18 year old stepson and a 15 year old son. Like, I mean, I get it. Like if Braden came home and said, I, I want to join this organization. The facility is alcohol free. As a mom, I'll be like, well, that sounds lovely. You know, let's live in the house. Like, I get it. So totally off subject, but you bring up a really interesting point. And it's a trend we've been seeing in our data for a long time. So it's not just a COVID thing. One of the things we ask in our research is who pays your dues? Do you pay your dues yourself? Do your parents pay your dues or is it some combination, right? And what we're finding is that we've now got data going back to 2015. So we're about to enter our sixth year of data collection. And what we've seen is a very steady decrease in students who say, my parents pay all my dues. And this is much more pronounced with fraternity members and a big in, a subsequent increase in, in, in fraternity members saying, I pay all or some of my dues. So, so to your point, parents are voting with their pocketbooks. They're less and less willing to finance their son's involvement in a fraternity. And that, that changes who joins and why they join, which is the segue into the next data point that we're seeing connected to COVID. So I'm gonna throw these both at you at the same time and we'll talk about them both. Next post COVID trend we've seen has to do with who's joining. With some of our groups, not all, but with some of our groups, we do a new member survey. And in that new member survey, we grab them as soon, literally as soon as they go through the pledging ceremony and begin, it triggers an email, boom, welcome to the fraternity. We need you to take five minutes and complete this survey. And we measure motivation to join. We measure a number of different things. One of the things that we measure is prior to coming to college, did you know you wanted to be in a fraternity? Yes, no, not sure. Those are the three options. And, and those numbers have been fairly steady over the last few years since we've been gathering the data. But what we saw in fall of 2020 was a big spike. 
in the percentage of students who said, yes, I knew before coming to college I wanted to be in a fraternity and a big decrease in the, the never and the maybe joiners, right? And that's the, the parlance. And I, I think Stolman was the first to create the notion of a, the always joiner, the maybe joiner, the never joiner. I'm not sure you might be able to shed more light on that. NIC. Was it the NIC? Okay. Stolman was the first person I heard talk about it, but I don't okay. know who coined well, he worked for the NIC. But that's the popular parlance in the industry, right? So we've seen a spike in always joiners, and we've seen a decrease in maybe in never joiners. Connected to the longer term trend that we've seen of parents less likely to fund the experience. So now you've got this generation of members, this class, right, that's going to be in these chapters for four years that consist of much more socially minded, socially motivated members, because that's what we know about the always joiners, right? They're much more socially motivated. And we've missed a whole swath of those maybe and never joiners. Will we ever get those guys back? Those fall 2020 freshmen who were on the fence or were like, no, fraternity's not for me. Do we ever pull them back in knowing that those guys often sometimes make our best members, our more responsible members because they're not the most socially motivated. And I, I think about this, Lori, particularly for those chapters who are on the fence, right? You, the tug of war between the faction that like just wants to party and have a good time and the faction who's like, no, we need to do fraternity the right way. And if going into COVID, those chapters that were 50-50 in terms of those factions, now they've got this one pledge class that swung wildly in the other direction, right? So now they're 60-40. That has long-term implications, right? In terms of the culture of that chapter. So I'm just... What, what are you seeing? What are you hearing from as you think about who's joining, why they're joining, looking at this through the lens of a parent who will be sending a son off to college in a few years? Like these are all problematic when we when we start to connect what they all mean and, and, and say about the future. So what I would love to ask. And I know research is not out there is, is now I'm watching high school students and high school parents and how people parent, I would love to know if those always joiners, I would love to know about their experience socially at home. Yeah. Your parents take you on spring break and provide alcohol. <laughs> Did you drink wine with your parents? Did you, you know, cause I live in the middle of Atlanta in the midst of all these private schools. And my son last year, when he was selecting a high school, there was a, a really good high school near me. Um, that, that's probably the best academically that he got into. But I looked on these parents, there was a Facebook group and all the senior moms take all the seniors to Jamaica so they can all drink, so we can teach them how to drink for college. We can't send them to college without drinking. Like I went head to head with these moms like in my driveway over COVID. Like, I mean, just a few of my friends and they were like, well, we busted in and someone was about to have sex. Like these are adults. And I'm wondering if the, I mean, this is just these, I'm going to join, even if my parents aren't paying, right. I wonder what their experience is at home with their parents. Sure. Because I think if I could tell you who the always joiners are in my circle, it's the kids who go to Jamaica with their parents mm -hmm. and the parents like sell the social experience. Like, you know, I, I remember when the NIC, you know, did, we put them into the buckets and we talked to students about it. Who are the always joiners? The maybe joiners. I mean, this, 
all of this just recircles back. Franz Johansson says all new ideas are just a reinvention of old. <laughs> all of this have been around. We just keep reinventing all this, like the NICBYOB checklist from the 90s. It still exists. Still there. I watch now as my friends' kids go to school, and this is just my intuitive listening. Oh, he would never join a fraternity. But it's usually the mom and dad who were like very disciplined and, and very structured with their kid and had expectations for their child. And so they're almost saying this would not work because I disagree with this kind of lifestyle. And I think Jed Horst does a great job talking about all the influencing factors. I mean, there's a, a million of them, but I'm in the midst of watching the parenting influence of it. Sure. And the parents, yeah, I've had several issues where my friend's sons have been hazed and, and I'm talking like, they're calling me. And one of them was like, it's fine. I, I made a deal with the new member educator and he's going to pay for the medical expenses. So Lori Hart had to hang up and call the headquarters anyway, because I was trying to get her to do it. And then I had a mom who like has a PhD, who's a public health expert, like, like just this. And she was like, like her son was on his deathbed and he either had to go drink or he had to go drive. And so I said, or the third option is I can get it shut down in 10 minutes. And she was like, can you? I'm like, I can. She's like, well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm like, you work in higher education, but it took this whole like, okay. Because I said, hey, if your son dies tonight, don't call me. I'm not coming to the funeral. It's not on me. I feel no guilt. Like, and so finally she was like, okay, report it. Like, <laughs> and we had, you know, I, I said, I'm not going to save hazing. I'm not going to fix hazing, but I'm certainly going to stop what's about to happen tonight. That's all I can help you with. And so we stopped what was about to happen that night. As I watched this through the lens of getting older, I think until the world can see that men's safety and women's safety is of equally importance, we are never going to get anywhere. We're never gonna get anywhere with hazing. We're never gonna get anywhere with like just assault and battery and the boys will be boys. But somehow the world believes, and, and I'm glad the world believes that sexual misconduct is wrong, right? But, but it, even in that lens, it's usually sexual misconduct to women is wrong, right? That's how people see it. But when they look through the lens of how we treat men today, People are just very okay that men have this high-risk experience as long as they're not hurt or as long as they don't die. And so I think that tolerance has got to shift somehow, but our lower-risk kids are still going to watch the higher-risk kids and choose. I mean, they're choosing not to have that experience. And, and when you look at who's choosing to have it versus who isn't, I mean, I, I think a lot about even the data that we've seen in the women's groups where we've seen over time that the social motivation has, has really spiked, right? Like more and more people who are joining really prioritize the social aspect of membership. And, and it's been that way ever since we've been gathering this data. So I think for a while that maybe the sororities at the national level felt like they were immune to what was going on in the fraternities because they weren't, seeing the hazing claims. They weren't seeing the issues, right? And so there was less pressure. But now you see the dynamics really changing. And I, so I think of the mother of my godson, right? One of my best friends from college, Elizabeth Clement. She was a member of AOPI, University of Tennessee. She was SGA president. She was, she was Miss Everything. Didn't drink, wasn't a partier, but saw a sorority as a legitimate place for her to get connected and to springboard into other things that she wanted to do on campus 20 years ago when we were in school. 
And I'm like, today, would someone like her even join a sorority? And, and would, would the male version of that even join a fraternity? Every piece of data that I have says, no, they probably wouldn't, right? Because the, the, the perception has become so toxic. And frankly, campuses, Jeremiah Shin talks about this all the time. 20 years ago, we were the best show in town, right? If you were an aspiring student leader and you wanted to get involved on campus, the absolute best thing you could do was join a fraternity or sorority. But now you've got living learning communities and campuses stepped up what they're doing with service learning and leadership. Like, you don't have to be in a fraternity or sorority to be SGA president. You don't have to be in a fraternity or sorority to have an awesome student leadership experience. And so those maybe and never joiners, when they weigh out the relative pros and cons of joining, particularly those that are really academically serious and they're worried about something that's going to distract from that. I want to go to law school or med school. Every piece of data that I have tells me that fewer and fewer of those students are choosing to join and that COVID just exacerbated that, right, in a big way in, in, in the last year. Or they joined to check the box and maybe not participate, right? right. Like, I've been asking a lot, um, Lean In McKenzie, they do a women in the workplace surveys. They've done it six years. And in year five, um, the, the, the intuitive thought is that women can't break through the glass ceiling. Like I remember when Hillary Clinton ran for president and, and they broke the glass ceiling above her. I was like, little cheesy, little too much. Isn't <laughs> one yet? Like, like I don't, I don't really, you know. Well, what McKinsey and Lean In have found is it's not that women can't break through the glass ceiling. Once you get there, it ain't hard. Now, women who are CEOs still do more housework than men who are CEOs. Like, it's very interesting in the dynamic of the workload. But what they found in their fifth year of research was it's not breaking the glass ceiling. They call it the broken run theory for every 100 men promoted out of college. So let's go, I'm 22, I get my first job, so first promotion, 24. For every 100 men, I believe the number was 72 women get promoted for every 100 men coming in that first round out of college. I use this research all the time with college women because I was like, first of all, that should piss you off. We make 77 cents on the dollar and that means if you're white, and that is 63 cents if you're African-American, 54 cents if you're Latina. So I'm not gonna make assumptions that, uh, I mean, not all of us are making the same. But second of all, let's think about your average college friend right now. Your average college male friend. Do you think he's smarter than you? <laughs> you? And they all are just like, you can see their faces. I mean, during COVID, we've been, I'm, like, I'm like, here's the deal though. You've told me that you're mad about sexual assault. You've told me that you're mad about blah, blah, blah. You, you've told me at race issues, blah, blah, blah. Do you ever speak up? Like, are you ever mad enough as women to speak up? Because we keep socializing women into sororities, and I see it a lot. We're socializing and coaching them to fit into this thing, and we are holding them back for the rest of their lives. Like, just what the hell are you pissed off about? Are you pissed off about the social environment? Well, good. Let's go do something about it. But instead, keep your mouth shut. That wouldn't be right. Like, I had a friend call me this summer, and by a friend, I was her campus Greek advisor at Georgia State years ago. And, um, but I was all like three years older than these people. Remember when you started your first job, you're like, I'm a director. And you're like, we're the same age. Yep. And she was like, her daughter was going to a big SEC school and was going through sorority recruitment. And her daughter had posted a Black Lives Matter statement um, and cited some Bible verses. And a woman in Texas called her, a big sorority woman, as she said, and she said, I think that Avery needs to take that down because sororities might not like that. 
So she called me to say, what do you think about that? And so I was like sweating. I was like, you know, my daughter is black, right? Like before we get started about what I think about this, like, you know, that Sydney is all kind of mixed and beautiful, right? And she goes, yeah. And I'm thinking, well, then why are you calling? Like, but she was calling her old Greek advisor for help. Like, that's exactly what it was. So after I stopped sweating, I was like, well, let me ask you a question, Deanna, because I've known you since you were 20. And Kirk, your husband, like I've known y'all, well, probably since they were 18. Like, I watched you go to school. I watched you graduate, get married. I've watched y'all become very successful. But you were also on Panhellenic. You were like mouthy and you had opinions and we fostered that. Do you remember that? She's like, yeah, yeah. I said, so if your sweet daughter took down this post, just so she could get in a sorority, because sororities might not like that. Do you think she'd be happy with a group of women who wouldn't allow her to say Black Lives Matter? She's like, no. Then I'm like, then why would you silence her? For whatever reason, I mean, that story is stuck with me, but it goes all back to your points of, as I rethink how to do things sitting here at my desk with students, you know, I often ask them, what are you upset about on campus? Is there anything that would upset you? And students are so socialized to be like, it's fine. I mean, Bob right here is snorting coke, but it's fine. Everything's fine. In Pi Kappa Phi one time, I had to facilitate at a conference because a kid came home drunk and defecated all over the room, all over the room. And the guy, the student, the, the other guy was sleeping and it bothered him, I guess. So of course, Pi Kappa was like, go talk to these two. So I sit down and I'm like, let's talk about it. And so the kid who defecated was like, I'm very sorry. And the other guy was like, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. I'm like, this is a big deal. <laughs> he shit on you. This is a big deal. But it's, we're so like, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Like we're living in this place of it's no big deal. And I want like fraternity folks and headquarters folks to maybe start. We got to get them talking about what does bother you. They lack, I've been talking about this for years and there's a lot of research on this because of the way they're parented and they're, you know, this whole helicopter parenting thing they get less of this unstructured, unsupervised time as kids and adolescents. And because of that, and the research on this is clear, Jonathan Haidt has written a lot about this. Um, they lack conflict resolution skills because I didn't get those conflict resolution skills as a kid. Then I show up to college and you stick me in a fraternity or sorority and you ask me to self-govern and hold my peers accountable. I don't know how to do those things because those things require being able to navigate conflict in a healthy way. And since I'm uncomfortable doing that, I just say, oh, it's no big deal when some dude shits in my room because, because I'd rather just not have to deal with it. Yeah, and we've moved into, it's not really my business, right? It's not really, and we've seen risk management policies change throughout like since 1987 and FIPG. Policy, our work in sororities and fraternities used to be written as a never, no, never. So like the drug policies of fraternities and sororities used to be like, don't do drugs ever, no, never. Mm -hmm. We have now had to move those policies, as you know, into fraternity event. Anything sponsored? <laughs> yeah, yeah, anything sponsored, endorsed by the organization. So, so the president's job is okay. Cool. It's just my job to keep it out of the house and to keep it out of the events. So the message then becomes: just don't do it at the house. Don't do it at the events. Not don't do drugs. And even like introducing that, like with women's groups, because I work with women's groups on policies. The women are like. I don't understand. You know, why would you say recruitment must be substance free? I'm like, because girlfriends smoking pot during recruitment. And they're like, what? Um, you know, so policies have been changed to reflect the times of students. I think we're all aware of it, but then no one ever says, well, maybe we should drug test, you know, like maybe we should 
have a conversation about why the policies had to shift. But I don't, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, this week alone, I've heard of a suicide at a, this past weekend, a drug overdose, same school, there was a third death, unsure what that is. I was on the phone yesterday with Auburn, another suicide. I mean, it's just, personally, I feel like we're at this place of all these people are struggling. And so we go, we need mental health work. We need to do mental health, mental health, but we got to go under the surface to go, well, how was he treated as a new member? What was expected of him as a new member? How was he talked to as a new member? What kind of drugs were available to him? And, and what is the normalized culture of this chapter that contributed to the And what's problem? the dissonance that I'm dealing with of the shit that I've participated in that is not a reflection of who I am? Like, I, and that's, that's at the heart of so much of the things that we see connected to hazing. And it's a perfect segue into the last data point that I wanted to talk about. So when you get to the third data point that we've seen post-COVID, it's a spike in social dominance motivation with regards to hazing kind of philosophy about the new member process. So inspired by Aldo Chimino's research, we built a scale, and it's one of the scales that we use in our research at Dyad that measures four different motivations for hazing. In other words, the philosophy that drives what it is you're trying to do with and to your new members. So there's solidarity, this idea of a bonded unified pledge class, there's loyalty and commitment, this idea that we want to make it hard. So we weed out the people who aren't fully committed and the ones who make it through will be more committed. There's a an altruistic one related to education, right? So, you know, we try to get Lori to memorize the creed of AOPI and she she couldn't memorize it in the allotted time. So we yelled at her and threw nasty things at her. And then the last one, and the most problematic one by far is, and this is something, Lori, I've heard you talk about for years with students is, and, and you may or may not have used these actual words, but social dominance. And the social dominance mindset is, reminding you of your low status in the organization. I used to, you would come talk to the boys at Alabama and their pledge gear all match up. Oh, you're just a pledge, just a pledge. Like that is embedded in my mind. You talking about that and you were talking about social dominance, right? You were talking mm -hmm. about this system that creates a second class citizenship for new members. If you want what I've got, membership in this fraternity, you got to do some things. You got to earn, you're going to have to clean, you're going to have to run some errands, you're going to have to dress like everybody else and be dehumanized. You're going to have to go through some crap because frankly, I've got the power to make you do those things. And, and the whole pledge process revolves around this hierarchy within the group. And what we've seen, and this one surprises me the most, the alcohol data doesn't surprise me at all because we know everyone's drinking more during COVID. The recruitment stuff doesn't surprise me at all because like who knew what campuses were even going to do in terms of recruitment, right? And, and a lot of people really struggle. It's not surprising that we consolidated a lot more always joiners in our chapters this year, but this one surprises me. Huge spikes, four to five tenths of a point. Most of our groups were hovering around a two in social dominance motivation. And in fall 2020, you saw that all spike up to about a two and a half on a five point scale. Massive jump. We're talking about four to five standard deviations, really big shift in the social dominance mindset. And I don't I don't know why that is. I've got theories about why that is. My, my leading theory is that because of COVID, because of the lockdowns, the inability to do big events, 
the things that groups were allowed to do to their pledges historically, clean up after parties, clean the house, you know, do all these different errands, like because of social distancing, because of the restrictions, fraternities weren't allowed to do some of the things that they've traditionally done to their new members. And so their response to that has been, well, these guys got off easy, right? And so now I'm even more concerned with this notion of social dominance because we've got this whole class of guys who didn't have to earn it the way I did. So, so that's there, that's embedded. And so where do we go from here? To me, there's two possible paths, one really good one, one really problematic one. The, the, the potential good path is we broke the cycle, right? So you've got this group of freshmen who are going to be sophomores who will be the ones supposed to be doing the hazing next year. And because they didn't have to go through all this crap, they might be less motivated to do that to the next generation. Or bad path, these juniors who didn't get to do what they felt like they were entitled to do this year to the freshmen, they show back up next year and the fall 2021 freshmen get it way worse than anyone ever got it before because the fall 2020 guys got a free pass. But there's the salience of new guys got to earn it. These new boys have to be put in their place is much stronger. It's much more salient in the minds of members now than it was a year ago. That may be the most concerning data point that we have because that social dominance mindset, Lori, as you know, once you flip that switch and you convince yourself that I can do something to someone because I have power over them, it's not long before Aaron running turns into Stanford prison experiment. Once you make that switch, it's a really bad thing. And what we've studied longitudinally in our chapters, in our, in our national clients who have four more years of data, we looked at chapters that were closed for hazing. And we looked at predictors. We looked at data points that kind of popped hot that were way outside the norm in the years leading up to their hazing. And the single biggest predictor of this was that social dominance mindset. Like when that spiked way out of the norm, it was just a matter of time before a chapter was closed for hazing. And so now we've got spikes across the board on this measure. This one scares the crap out of me. And, and I'm obviously not a lot of hazing stuff came through this year in terms of insurance claims. What's that gonna look like next year? That, that really concerns me. So I was talking to an MPHC client, a staff member, and we were talking about, because um, membership intake is in person. Some of our, we've seen women, I, I can't comment on all nine, but the women have gone to an online process for intake, which I think is a beautiful revenue maker because it just expands. Like, absolutely. We recruit. But he said, oh no, our executive director is never going to do it. And I knew exactly why. I said, Ryan, is it because if you're a Zoom member, they're going to kill him once they get in front of it? Like, you know, it's like, worse than being paper. You're Zoom. It's worse. That's exactly. He said, it's worse <laughs> than paper. Zoom yeah. is worse than paper. And I'm like, my God, it's embedded, right? Yeah. And fast forward a week later, my husband and I are at a Mexican restaurant, socially distanced, watching the football. And all of a sudden, these like eight college people come Zoom and uh, Clay was like, very, they're very close. And I'm like, I was like, it's football. So then I start listening to them. And of course, as a good researcher would, that's, that's as a good researcher. I start taking yeah. pictures as I listen. <laughs> I 
these fools are like talking about how they're individually going to haze each guy. Like how they're individual. So, so we can't do group, right? Yeah. We can't basement. So they were talking about each person and what they would do to each person individually. Yeah. And they were going to put one kid in the Chattahoochee in a raft and let him go 20 miles and meet him at the bottom where they were tailgating in the winter. And so I'm like, we have to find out who these people are. Like we have to report this. Like, and so Clay works for the state department. So he like grows in the bathroom and goes to like a urinal. He's like, Hey buddy, you know, like, I'm like, this is so good. So he was, he came back out and he was like, they're XYZ from XYZ. So of course I'm like, here's the phone. you know, like here's the information. <laughs> She's playing with her phone for those of you who can't see her and only hear her. Oh, oh yeah. Sorry. Play with my phone. I'm texting. texting. She's texting her colleagues. Yeah. Texting the colleagues saying, here's the information. But you know, again, see, this is what happens because they're not now in these large groups. They're just doing it in little pockets. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden it's not going to be, you know, it won't be chapter, but it's all these people. So, so this, I, I don't know if it's, it's not surprising to me, but I always say we have good fraternities and sororities and we have five assholes causing the problem. Mm-hmm. Those, and, I, and I call those assholes the fog, right? And it's, there's a whole story behind the fog that I talk about, but like, if we don't deal with the people causing the problem, to your point, social dominance goes up because mm-hmm. the has the power. Mm-hmm. Um, I stumbled upon a, if you go to, uh, if you listen to podcasts, Brene Brown did an interview with what was then Vice President um, Joe Biden. And before Joe Biden spoke, um, before she interviewed him, she talked about her research on power. And she's, I've done hundreds of thousands of research on people and power. And I had never heard this and I've started using this. And so I'm going to tell you all this. Um, if you just want the synopsis, I've typed it all up so I can send it to you. But she talks about the difference of power over versus power within. What we tend to do is say anything that has any power dynamic, we're like, that's hazing, that's hazing, that's hazing. And I've never been a, as you know, I don't ever talk about hazing. I talk about how we treat people, yep. which is, you know, we have to talk about desired behavior instead of, we can't say don't do sexual assault. We have to talk about what does consent look like? Mm-hmm. You know. You to go under the problem to teach them. So the power over is, it works from the premise that power is finite, it's protected, fear is used, being decent is a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. And I always say that twice with students, being a decent person is a sign of weakness. We provide ideology over facts. We scare them to give them uncertainty. We give someone to blame for their discomfort. You're having to do push-ups on glass because Bob was late. Um, we dehumanize and we use language for it to take humanity away. And it's as she said those things. <laughs> that sounds familiar. Yeah. So instead of saying don't haze, we have to talk about who holds the power. Mm-hmm. And that's such an easier way to enter into the conversation with students because they'll tell you who holds the power. They don't know that they're giving you information, but they're like, here's who holds the power. Tell me what that looks like. Use your little motivational interviewing skills. The power within, it's not protective. It's expansive. We collaborate. It's connection. It's empathy. There's a transparent learning culture. We move towards accountability, servant leadership, rights and freedoms go hand in hand and human values placed at the center. So every time I'm in front of students now, these are the buckets in which I talk from. And if I'm a campus professional, I think, or someone who's writing curriculum, this is an easy way to get students thinking about scenarios because the reality is there will always be power in groups and organizations and entities. There's power in PTOs, there's power I'm on a board, a school board meeting or a school board in Atlanta 
like there's an executive committee session. I don't go to that. I come and they tell me the answer and I'm like, boom, I don't have the power. <laughs> so there's always power. So maybe this is an opportunity to in, using your research, how do we enter into it using Brene Brown's research on power and getting them maybe to open up about that. Where's a time where you've seen power in the organization? What did that look like? What percentage of the chapter was involved in that? Who do you think holds the most power in this chapter? Tell me why. And if they go, it's Sloan, well, tell me what Sloan does. Well, Sloan sends group texts to the women and tells them they're stupid. Then we know we have power over and who's doing it. Um, so I just think it's, a, it's just a refreshing way to maybe think about how we are engaging with students. Um, but, and I'm also going to go back because now I'm just old. Um, I saw Ray and Groover recently, just ran into her and Steve and um, have talked at length with Jim Piazza about this because they have done all this work. I mean, they have given their hearts and souls and been on the road and are living their grief with all of us. And Jim called me one day and he was just, despite himself, despite himself, because it's not working. Like he's finally like, it's not working. I think they wanted the headlines to stop. I think they wanted the claims to stop, you know, and, and it's, and I think they're feeling a bit defeated. And so with Jim Piazza, I laid out the social ecological model. And I'm like, you're sitting here in this community bubble. Now you're going out here to public policy, trying to pass laws. But we looked at the different vectors and I'm like, to address this, here's all the people you need looking at the social ecological model. And we've all got to do this collectively. But until people are angry about it, we do not change. George Floyd changed this world because he was, people were angry and they saw it. And until parents and students, and if the hazing's going on in the men's groups and the women are not just fixing the cigarette burns on their friends' hands versus reporting it, like until people are angry, I, I don't know if we're gonna get anywhere. So part of me thinks, can we fix that? I don't know, but can we fix the vectors around it and get people pissed off so that there is like, we will no longer tolerate this? I think we've got a hook there. So much of it is connected back to just society, right? Like all the things going on in our society right now. And I'm, I'm fascinated to explore some research that we're doing. I, I'm reminded of, of what you shared earlier about the young woman and, and the Black Lives Matter post. We started studying political ideology and, and people who follow me on social media know what my political ideology is, right? And I'm not endorsing one or condemning another. Jonathan Haidt's research into moral foundations theory gets into the different things that we moralize, right? What, what, are, what, are, the, what are the moral foundations? What, what is a moral decision? Something that impacts fairness, something that impacts harming someone else, something that impacts uh, group loyalty. And, and what, what his research has found is that political conservatives moralize things that political liberals do not, right? So liberals tend to only moralize issues of fairness and equality and then mm -hmm. harm and care, right? So you shouldn't hurt people and you should treat people fairly. And those are moral issues. And conservatives moralize those things, not quite as much as liberals, but they still identify them as moral issues. But then competing with that is in-group loyalty. That's a moral issue. So if you are unpatriotic, I think about the how liberals and conservatives responded differently to Colin Kaepernick's protest, right? 
liberals who don't think of patriotism as a moral issue see his protest as just and great. But conservatives, even those conservatives who will say, well, yeah, I support his cause. I just don't support the way he's going about doing it because he's being disrespectful to his country. That's a moral issue for them, right? Uh, In-group loyalty is one and the other is obedience to authority. Obey thy father and mother, right? So again, political liberals do not see obedience to authority as a moral issue. In fact, they will quote Martin Luther King and say, sometimes the moral thing to do is to rebel against authority, but conservatives tend to primarily focus on morality that, that uses the group to control behavior. And so because of that, they see obedience to authority as a moral issue. So back away from that, think about our research in hazing. I read Jonathan Haidt's research and I looked at our hazing research and I was like, well, there's two really good connections there. Social dominance is obedience to authority and in-group loyalty is the loyalty commitment motivation. We're about to publish this paper, political conservatives Fraternity men who, who identify as politically conservative are much more likely to endorse hazing that's designed around reinforcing group hierarchy or reinforcing this idea of being loyal to the group. And now you back away from that. And as we start to look at this longitudinally, it's skewing more every year. It's, it's perceivable. It's not a huge shift, but we've only been gathering the political ideology data for a couple of years more and more conservative, less and less liberal, right? Like students who self-identify as liberal or progressive are joining fraternities and sororities in decreasing numbers. And this is all before abolished Greek life came along, right? So it's like, I connect all these dots about who's paying for the experience, who's joining and why they're joining. We're drinking more. We're reinforcing the social hierarchy because we're politically more conservative and, and all that that means like there's there's so many dots that I look at that just send me into like panic mode like this is really bad and I so I, I guess my last question for you is talk me down from the ledge right because I look at all this and I'm concerned about the future and I'm not I'm not an apologist for fraternities. I'm a proud fraternity member. I'm not someone who's advocated we should get rid of or we should you know, support blindly. I, I loved my experience and I've had a great experience. But when I just objectively look at the data that I have access to, I'm concerned. Should I be? Should I not be? Like, I, help, me, help me process where my mind is at. Well, it's funny because you spend your energy right there looking at numbers and data. I mean, it's like if we looked at, if we, if you sat all day and looked at suicide rates in this country or overdoses in this country, you would be, that's, it would, it starts to get to you. Sure. So that gift to us is that you're able to connect all that, right? I mean, what you just described to me was like a bad country club. We're becoming more homogeneous, like a bad country club Yeah. Um, that, you know, I, I was, I'm not a member of in Atlanta, but I was there with a friend and I was holding my daughter and a man came up to me and asked who my husband was. And I was like, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I just walked off. I was like, just shut the door. Get out of my face. Like, it was just like, but that's that, you know, and Clay was like, we have to get out of here. You know, like we no longer go to Florida because in Florida, it's all white people on the beach. We go to Mexico because in Mexico, it looks like the world that we want to live in. We, and that's not to say that I'm seeing through a different lens, right? What you just described to me is scary as shit because you're putting all that together. But I'm sitting here as you describe that and I'm thinking about 
conversations because that's what I do. And I'm thinking about a conversation that I was working with Ole Miss on risk management and the sorority president asked if I could meet with them the next day and the whole board was there and they were talking about how to get rid of these antiquated rules that they put in place so that they could use their voice. And I think about an article that I just saw on Facebook with Blaine Tachi, who was a student at LSU, who was a president, and God knows he was the best leader I've ever had. And he listened to me and we, he led. And now, lo and behold, he's like not even 30. And he's like on the cover of this magazine with a real estate company with Keller Williams in Louisiana. And I posted on his Facebook and I was like, all of your quotes sound just like you're a fraternity president who's grown up. And he was like, without that experience, I would not be doing this. And then I said, well, you should buy me a house, which he said, no. <laughs> and then I think about like, um, I think about Christina at AD Pi, a staff member who called me because in her home chapter, they were having women politically go against each other. And to the point that one parent called and said, this is hazing, right? Like, because the liberals were going after the two conservatives in the chapter. And, and the work that Christina has done with them to try to get them to understand, we have to have civil conversations with each other. So for all that that you do, I'm sitting here going, but, 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 because I get to live the story sometimes and campus professionals get to live the stories. So I'm thinking maybe you should become a volunteer advisor. I know you already are. I am. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I don't know. I, you know, it's interesting um, because it does, it feels like we're losing a fight, but I think if you really talk to higher education people, it just, all of it feels heavy right now. I mean, the yeah. mental suicides, the, all of it feels heavy with students today. And I often think, did my parents feel this way? Like when I was in college, like, I, I don't know if they did, but I do feel like, um, I mean, I say to students all the time, like you, you, you can't do drugs and take a Xanax and do the pregame and not sleep and then tell me you have anxiety. Like you, you, you can't. And NASPA did some good work during all of this around student behaviors and what they were doing and not doing and, you know, increased social media, less sleep, less exercise. So as I say to the national organizations, use, use that to set, not say, well, we need to go hire 18 counselors. No, we now have to start back with the basics of self-care. Um, and so all the research you do is brilliant because everything that we should be doing at Fraternity and Sorority, you should at least be able to point to a data set or something intuitive to say, here's why we're doing it. I think students need self-care. I think we need trained chapter advisors. I think um, we should stop doing all of our other work until every chapter has advisors that are trained, that, that we're all in line with each other. Um, I think there's all this work that we must do in order for the student experience to get better. Um, I'm scared to death of drug testing because I think if we did, we'd all be shut down. But at some point, what is our line? Like, what is our line and what we're going to tolerate or not tolerate in these groups? Because it feels a little bit like in 20 years, if we're all sitting here going, and they closed, like at some point, somebody should have said, well, let's, like, I would even start with, if you want to be radical, like every membership review you do, I don't care if you're men, I don't care if you're women, let's start by peeing in a cup. That's very radical right now. And I don't think that- I, It shouldn't be at all. Like that blows my mind that that's still a conversation that we're having. But you know, just from your work at Alabama, that it, it, it works if it's consistent. 
I literally did a session at AFA 10 years ago that called drug testing works. It was me and Earl Mooring and like we had data. It was, it was, and we were like, we're going to get more people on board with this. And yeah, it just, it didn't happen. Yeah. We're not here to talk about drug testing though. We could, we don't yeah. have time. Good. Um, Parting thoughts before we wrap up. I, what are you working on? What's exciting you right now? Like what's, what's going on in, in the world of Lori Hart? Uh, oh, that's good. Um, you know, I think for me, the pandemic, I, I've been very blessed. I've been very lucky. My father's in hospice and is still doing well, like family-wise. Um, but for me, I've been allowed to sit at home a little bit. And that has been refreshing after 25 years. Um, and I think this has, we have to look for the good. I think this has taught us ways to do things differently. I don't have to fly to Oregon to have 800 students engage with me. I don't have to get on planes and organizations can save money. So I've used this as a chance to hang out with family. We got a puppy, pandemic puppy. My husband oh was mad at me, um, but why wouldn't you? I got pandemic married. I mean, go for it. I know you got pandemic married. <laughs> Probably pandemic baby coming. Ooh, uh, no, no, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't, what's new and exciting. I did an AFLV keynote where they film me. So I like to joke that I'm an actor now. That's exciting. So that's coming. So life is, I'm incredibly blessed. I've always been incredibly blessed in this industry. So it's been fun. Well, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you having this conversation. We could go on for hours. We'll definitely do this again soon, but uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank for you. Thank you for all the work you do for real. I um, voice in this space. Thank you. If it sounds like I got a bit pessimistic there towards the end of my conversation with Lori, I guess it's because I am. I worry about where we are as an industry. I see all of these interconnected trends. I see the momentum of the abolished Greek life movement. I see who's joining and why they're joining. And more importantly, who isn't joining and why they aren't joining. And then I look around at what we're doing about all of this, and it all just seems like it isn't enough. To quote my friend Mike McCree, we're mowing the lawn while the house is on fire. Everything we do seems like it's too little, too late. So what do I hope to see between now and fall of 2021? Big ideas, bold action, National groups who want to provide a different kind of experience, partnering with campuses who are willing to think outside of the box and take risks. A drastic reimagination of what it means to be in a fraternity or sorority. A drastic reimagination of how we recruit and socialize new members into our organizations. Five years from now, fraternity and sorority professionals will look back on the COVID pandemic and ask ourselves a simple question. Did we just figure out ways to hang on to the old in a virtual environment? Or did we utilize the opportunity that COVID provided to rethink what we do and why we do it? We'll ask ourselves, when things finally got back to normal, had we done the work to ensure that the new normal would take us to a better place? Or did we allow all these little problems to just pile up until the challenges facing the experience seemed insurmountable? The data that we're seeing suggests that the new normal that awaits us at the end of this pandemic will not be pretty. Between now and then, we have serious work to do. Let's get to it. So that's the end of season one. 
We'll be taking a break for a few months and we'll launch season two later this spring. To our hundreds of devoted listeners, thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. If you have ideas or suggestions about topics or guests for season two, I am all ears. Drop me an email at gentry at dyadstrategies.com. I really look forward to hearing from you. You've been listening to the Dyad Podcast, a production of Dyad Strategies. Brittany Todd is our production assistant. Our theme music is composed by Magnus Moon. For more information, visit us online at www.dyadstrategies.com.